0: You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit Common Ground. Lena Fowler, who hailed from Salem, Oregon. Um, They are, I'll just say personally, I have just really enjoyed my time with them. Um, It's hard to say goodbye even, you know, like on a Friday evening. We just want to hang out and talk. And, uh, I just, they're just cool people, really cool people. So, as you know, we are in the midst of a pastoral search, and uh, Evan and and Lena have come to take a good hard look at us to see if we're too weird for them, (laughs) and vice versa. (laughs) And and part of that process is uh, Evan uh, sharing a message with us, and so he's about to come up and do that. And we just want you to know that this is still a process, so please continue to pray for Evan and Lena, that God would speak clearly to their hearts for future and decisions, and, and for us as well. And uh, whatever God decides, that today would be a day that's just rich and full of blessing for for both of you and us as well. So uh, welcome to Common Ground. You've already heard that, but uh, uh, everybody welcome Evan Fowler this morning.
1: Thank you, Thanks, everyone. really appreciate it. As Nick said, we've had just a lot of fun hanging out with you guys. Um, and being here, we've just really felt welcomed. Like everyone's arms have been open to us, and we're just having fun. And we really appreciate that people here at Common Ground are people that like having fun. So we, we get along with them. you are not too weird. Been saying that about ourselves. Like, maybe it's because we're that weird, but you know we don't see it that much. But anyway, again, thanks for having us. And as a guest here today, I actually get the privilege of jumping into the series that you've already been in over the last few weeks in the Book of First Peter. And so I get the privilege of wrapping it up in chapter 5. So that's where we're going to head today is 1 Peter chapter 5. And what we're going to see as we reach this last chapter of 1 Peter is that Peter is writing to, to his spiritual children here, to a people who, if you will remember, are going through a lot. They're going through persecution and suffering. And he's writing to them to encourage them to keep going, to keep pursuing Jesus, and to keep pursuing Christ's definition of the good life here. And what Peter teaches on this pursuit of the good life is not just a strict set of behavior modifications. It's not the set of religious traditions. We know that as followers of the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus is not just a set of rules. It's not just a set of behaviors that we follow, but it's a way of living. It's a state of being. And so as we look at Peter's instructions here we're going to see that they're all wrapped up in this way of being. And we're going to go through this epistle and go through three sections and see that Peter is teaching us how to relate to those around us, specifically those above us, those below us, and to the world around us. And we'll see this in kind of three key instructions as we go through, kind of section by section. The first is to be shepherds. The second is to be humble. And the third is to be alert and of a sober mind. So it's my hope today that as, as followers of the ways of Jesus, we will see this an invitation to be shepherds, to be humble, and to be of a sober mind as truly the definition of human flourishing and the way that we follow Jesus. So that's where we're headed. Does that sound good? Can we handle that? Awesome. Well, before we go there, uh, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father God, we turn our attention the attention of our hearts, our minds, and our souls towards you. We give ourselves up to be changed and formed by your hands, God. We ask that you would impart in us these gifts that you describe. Um, and God, we put ourselves willingly before your feet um, to learn and to be changed. Jesus, we come here as an act of worship to you. So Jesus, we love you. Would you just speak through me today? Would you speak through your word? We know that it's living and active and... And we just come expectant for what you have for us. So, Jesus, we love you. it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So, this first instruction, to be shepherds. Um, Peter's going to start here by addressing the elders, as we're going to see when we read it in a second. And we know the temptation when we hear the word elders is to assume what? Old. Old, right? Age. When we hear the word elders, we kind of assume, I guess, they're talking to what Nick would call codgers. Um, <laughs> I don't even know what that means, and I don't swear, so I don't know if I just want old words or if I'm allowed to say that up here. Um, but Peter, when he says elders, he's not just referring to people who are older. Um, Peter is using it as an official position within the church. Um, this is a position that the first century church adopted from Judaism. Um, and you'll see it when you read the Gospels, and, and Jesus is t- talking to um, the chief priests and the elders. This was a position within the church, and the first century church adopted it as the leaders who were appointed by the apostles. So they're leaders in the early church. And So it, when we hear the word elder, we're not just talking about age. And now here's a comment that I get a lot, because I'm a young elder, um, and so I often have to explain that elder... Is not just an age range, but it's a position. Um, And at my home church, as an elder, I do a lot of the meetings and the interviews with new people who come into the church, and they're always a little surprised when they see that my their meeting is with me and not some gray-haired guy. And so I always get to explain that it's this position. Um, But I've been used to explaining, you know, my age to some people, as you know, in my first church. Um, When I was first a pastor, people would come into the church and they'd be like, you know, oh, so how old is your pastor? And they would say, 22. And people would be like, what happened here? What, What terrible thing happened for you to have a pastor in your 20s? So it's good to be a little further on in there. But when we see this word elder, we're not just talking about old people. We're talking about this position. We're talking about leaders in the church. And so as we look at this instruction, it it specifically applies to elders in the church. But I think we can also stretch that invitation to be shepherds to all leaders in the church. So if you are a leader, if you lead worship, if you lead women's ministry, if you're leading refuge groups, whatever your capacity is in this church, this instruction to be a shepherd, I think applies. And I would even say that outside of the ministry context, as we look to follow Christ in every aspect of our lives, this instruction to be a shepherd can also be applied to our leadership at work, at school, in our families, in whatever capacity we find ourselves. If we have seniority or authority or any sense of leadership, this instruction to be a shepherd applies to us as Christians. And so if you'll please turn with me, to 1 Peter, chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 all the way through 1st 5 in this first section on being a shepherd. So that's 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who, will, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So this first instruction to be shepherds. Is anyone in here a shepherd? We do have a shepherd in the room. That's amazing. I honestly didn't hear shaking his head no. I didn't expect there would be. I don't think it's that common of an occupation anymore. Um, And I don't really know much about being a shepherd. We have a ton of sheep in Oregon. They kind of seem to be everywhere, but I never see any shepherds when I'm driving by the fields of sheep. And I've never really talked to one. So my experience with sheep is really limited to just wearing, like, wool socks and eating lamb, which we know is the vegetarian meat. Right, Um, But the people that Peter wrote to in this time, they would have been more familiar with shepherding. They would have known the highs and the lows. They would have known all that goes into it. They would have known that there's a lot that goes into being a shepherd. Like how sheep will eat anything, including poisonous foods, so the shepherds have to be careful and find them good pasture. That sheep can't walk through mud too much or their feet will rot, and so they have to find them good paths to walk on. That sheep often wander off, and the shepherd has to go follow them. That sheep have no defense mechanisms, and so if lions or wolves or bears show up, the shepherd has to fight them. This is a terrible job. <laughs> Being a shepherd does not sound fun. Um, you know, sheep are cute, right? But I don't think I could fight a lion to save a sheep, as cute as they are. If the lion showed up, I would honestly just think, like, you know, I get it, man, you're hungry. Um, God made you and God made him, and this one's on me. Um, I don't think I could be the kind of shepherd that fights a lion to save a sheep. I don't know. That's hard. But we know that this call from Peter is not too literal livestock herding, right? We know this is a metaphor. We know that throughout the Bible, God uses this imagery of shepherding to describe spiritual leadership are countless examples. We know Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. And this metaphor would have held significant meaning to Peter because we know that it was after Peter denied Jesus three times. He doesn't see Jesus again until after the resurrection. And just like he denied Jesus three times, Jesus then asked him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And the way Peter was to prove his love for Jesus was by feeding Jesus' sheep by responding to this call to be a shepherd. And so this image of a shepherd would have held significant meaning for Peter as he knew he was called to care for and to protect the sheep and to be that, that significant caretaking leader. And so I wonder, in, in your leadership relationships, maybe which aspect of shepherding resonates best with you? I wonder which of those images strike you. Maybe which you are gifted in. Are you gifted in in helping new believers give birth to new ones? Are you gifted in in being able to provide good pasture and good food? Or or maybe knowing which foods are poisonous um, and which ideas are rooted in bad theology or, or misunderstandings of the scripture. Are you good at protecting the flock? Are you good at rescuing people? So I would ask that you continue to stir your heart and mind and see where has God gifted you to be a shepherd. What shepherding gifts do you have to care for this flock in which God has placed you? And to look into how you can shepherd this flock. And Peter says here to be shepherds to the flock under your care. And in the Greek, the word here that he uses is poignion, which infers to a flock you have been given. Um, not a flock that's been earned or a flock that's been bought, but a flock that's been given. Now, I don't actually speak Koine Greek. Um, I only needed a few language credits in grad school, and I took Hebrew, not Greek. But it's 2020, and I know how to click the little button on the uh, Lexicon app that translates it for me. So uh, I had a little fun with the Lexicon this week. Buckle up. But you'll see that in the first century, this word was used to refer to flocks that have been given because oftentimes in first century Roman Empire, citizens were given flocks to care for. They were allotted lambs. And so this would have resonated with the people in the time because they knew this process of being given or allotted lambs, of being assigned. And so Peter is using this as an example of how God has assigned a people to us often that we haven't done anything to earn or buy or deserve this flock that we have, but we have this sense of assignment of allotment that we are given, that they're ours to take care of, even when it's hard, even when we might want to swap out a few sheep for others, this is the flock that we've been assigned, that we are to take care of the sheep. And the reality of being a shepherd in our flock is that we are assigned all of the sheep, not just the cute little lambs, but there can be some stubborn, wild, prone-to-wander sheep. And we are called to be sheep shepherds over all of them, just as, as Jesus described in his parable of the good shepherd, the one that leaves the 99 to save the one, Jesus shows that he is the faithful shepherd who will pursue even those who are prone to wander. And we, as followers of Christ, are called to do the same, to care for and to be faithful for our people in the same way. Now, growing up, I was a pretty serious baseball player. I, I spent a lot of time in high school playing baseball, and I had a really tough coach who was hard on us. He conditioned us like crazy. He made sure that we did everything right, and he would not get off our back until we did. Um, and I appreciated this, um, taking it pretty seriously and wanting to get better and wanting to move to the next level. Um, and so I liked that he always told us, you know, don't ever worry if I'm hard on you or if I'm really on your back. Don't worry about that, because that means I believe in you and I want you to get better. Um, when you should be worried is when I stop caring or when I stop coaching. So I always took that and I always appreciated that. So when he was hard on me, I saw that as a sign he believed in me and I saw that as, you know, encouragement to keep going. But now going into my senior year of high school, see, I was a pitcher and that's really what I was good at. I threw out my arm. I threw out my pitching arm, had an injury to a ligament in my arm, and I was no longer able to pitch at the capacity I did before. And having to transition to hitting, I just wasn't doing all that well. And so I went from thinking I was this all-star player, getting all this attention around the area, to now struggling for a position on my own team. And this was hard on me, and as I struggled to hit, I was really struggling emotionally to deal with this this drop in ability and this drop in status. and I'll always remember there was there was one practice when I was I was working on the tee with my coach and and I was just struggling to get this drill right. I was struggling to fix something he was trying to fix in my swing. Um, and I knew that he was a guy who he wouldn't get off my back until I got it right. Um, and we were coming kind of around to the end when we needed to be done with this drill. And I swing and hit the ball and it was just ugly. It wasn't what we were supposed to be doing, and it wasn't fixing the problem that I had. And he just looked at me and said, all right, great, patted me on the back and trotted off. <laughs> and immediately I remembered, like, he told me when I should be worried is when he doesn't coach me. And so as I stood there knowing that was a bad rep and I should have done it again, I really felt like, man, he'd given up on me. And so I stood there as the whole team kind of gathered around to talk, and I just stared at the tee, trying to just gather myself back together before going over and talking. And and one of the other coaches, he saw me just standing there in front of the tee. He saw me trying to hold myself together. He came over and he asked, do you want to do a few more? And gritting my teeth and trying to keep it all together, I nodded and said yes. So he came over, got down on a knee, and put a few more balls on there for me. Let me hit a few more. And his willingness to see me in that place where I felt like everyone had given up on me and him coming in and just putting a few more balls on the tee for me, something that has stuck with me forever. And church, as we shepherd this flock that we are in, may we be the people who are willing to spend a little more time to maybe put a few more balls on the tee for our friends, for our family. May we be a people who are faithful to one another. But now this whole idea of poimeneon, of of being assigned a flock, also has to be juxtaposed with what he says in the second half of verse 2. Be shepherds to God's flock that are under your care, watching over them not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. So along with this idea of responsibility and of some duty towards our flock, we know that we don't just lead out of obligation. We don't just lead because we're people pleasers and we can't say no. We don't just lead because we're afraid that it won't get done if we don't do it. We lead because we are invited to be co-workers with God. We lead because we find joy in it. And so at those times when we feel broken down, like we are just tired of serving, but we know we can't stop because then it will all fall apart. We remember here that it's an invitation to be a shepherd and a coworker of God. It's an invitation to serve from joy. And the sense of responsibility doesn't negate that call and that invitation to do so joyfully and eagerly. So that is a warning. And including in Peter's warnings, he also includes not to lead for dishonest gain. No. Don't be greedy. Don't be looking to gain from your leadership. Don't lead for selfish motives, but lead for the good of others. Um, and in Peter's days, you know, some people, just like today, were paid for their leadership in the church. Um, and he's telling them, you know, don't do it for the money. And just like today, you know, that can be a temptation. It's not super widespread in ministry that some will, someone will be in it for the money, as, you know, like Matt's not really raking in the dough for leading worship today. <laughs> And so while it can be a temptation for some, and you know we know all the examples from the Prosperity Gospel guys or from the Preachers and Sneakers Instagram page, we know that they're out there and they're easy targets. But for the most part, money probably isn't that much of a temptation. But in leadership and in ministry, there are other temptations that come along with leadership that we can be tempted in order to gain. Leadership in general comes with a selfish temptation's like social capital, like recognition, position, influence, followers on social media, power. And power is being talked about a lot right now, right? talked about a lot in the political world. Power is often defined as the ability to shape our world to fit our own wants or desires. So we all want more power. We all want the ability to shape our little world to look the way we want it maybe to shape the church to look like us, maybe to shape our friend group just to be like us. And we can be tempted by the idea in our leadership to serve our own wants and our own desires, our own preferences. But the shepherding leader is not greedy and seeking that. The shepherding leader sets aside their comfort, sets aside their desires for the good of the flock. And it was pastor and cultural commentator Mark Sayers who wrote that when leaders die to pushing their own agendas and realize that leadership is the act of dying to self, those around them are profoundly transformed. Selfless leadership opens a space for God to flow into. So the final thing on being a shepherd, I would say, comes from verse 3. Be shepherds of God's flock, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Because as leaders, we know that we're not supposed to just throw our weight around. As leaders, we don't just boss people around and preach from a distance. I'm sure you've all kind of had a leader who was like that at some point in your life. Um, Maybe a boss, a coach, a parent. Someone who liked to boss orders but not actually live it out. And that's not the ethos of Christian leadership. We are called to lead from the overflow of our own faith. We are called to lead from a place of being in communion with Jesus ourselves. After all, as we seek to love and serve those in our church family, we must remember that that our authority as leaders doesn't come from being better or smarter than other people. It comes from our example, our faith, and it comes from God imparting that on us. Um, If we look at what Peter says in the beginning of this chapter, the qualification that he claims... um, it's just that he is a fellow elder. He's a fellow follower of Christ. He doesn't pull rank. He doesn't bring up his education. He doesn't bring up his net worth. He just says, I am a fellow elder. I'm a fellow follower of Christ. If anyone has the right to appeal to authority, Peter does. But he doesn't do it. He says, I know what you're going through. I know what it's like. I am trying to follow Jesus in the same place and time as you. And that's where his authority comes from in that sense. And so as we seek to lead, as we seek to build this church, we do so from example. We do so as we seek to follow Jesus ourselves. We honestly seek to be the kinds of leaders who are deep in our faith and who follow Jesus. And it's from that place that we lead others. So that's the first instruction here. Be shepherds. The second is be humble. So if we look at verse 5 through six here, this next section of first Peter chapter five, verse five through six. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble humble yourselves. Therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So first Peter started talking to the elders those in leadership, now he's talking to those who are younger, but not just in age, but to those who are under some sense of leadership. Now, while not all of us might be in a place of leadership at this point in our lives, all of us, regardless of age, stage, whatever, are going to be under some sort of leadership. And so, this call to be humble applies to all of us. Peter says here, to be submissive and to clothe yourselves with humility. Now, remember, the guy who wrote this letter doesn't really seem like the most humble person in the world, does he? This is the guy who leads from the front. This is the zealot. Um, This is the guy who was an apprentice of Jesus, but yet he always seemed to be yelling at Jesus. Um, And one time after he yelled at Jesus, Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan, and literally called him Satan. (laughs) not a pet name, literally Satan. That's not what you want to hear from your rabbi. Um, And Peter, nonetheless, even after being scolded multiple times by Jesus, still thought maybe he could walk on water, still swung a sword at a guy, and Jesus had to scold, scold him again. Peter didn't always look like the most humble guy in the world. But this is the guy who says, Clothe yourself with humility. Because as Peter made these mistakes, he shared close proximity with the embodiment of humility, Jesus. And so he learned a thing or two about humility, I think. Because the word Peter used here to describe humility is really unusual when describing a virtue. Um, He's saying, clothe yourself as in put on a piece of clothing that is tied on with a knot, like an apron. That's kind of the description he uses here. And another place when that is used is when Jesus washed the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. In that passage, it says that Jesus poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him and tied with a knot. So that towel, that apron was wrapped around him and Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And Peter is saying here, don't do what I did. Do what Jesus did. Wrap humility around your waists like a towel and serve others. Wash feet, don't look to be served, but serve. Now, Humility is really one of the most fundamental Christian virtues, right? We've heard humility a lot. And we know that true humility requires having a correct view of ourselves and of God and the relationship there. We know that it's not about thinking too little of ourselves, Or thinking too much about ourselves. But it's living in that tension of understanding that we're broken, we're messed up, we're sinful. But we're also beautiful and wonderfully made. And we're bought with the precious blood of Christ. And it's living in that tension. But clothing ourselves with humility. Clothing ourselves with this attitude of Christ that's willing to serve and not be served. Will invite the spirit into us in a place where we don't have anything to prove. It doesn't mean that we lack self-awareness or we don't ever think about ourselves. It just means that we don't have anything to prove. So when we're in arguments, we don't need to win to feel intelligent. When we're in situations when it's out of our control, we don't need to seek control for that. We don't need to be offended by every little thing because we know our identity. We don't always need to resent our limits, but we can accept our failures and our limits. And so growing in humility, it's difficult and it takes time. And it takes time and a lifetime of submission to God to invite a spirit into us to change these things. It's not just a skill that can be acquired in a couple of weeks. It's something that has to be developed through submission to God. Through being in a community who sees us for who we truly are, who are affirming our true identities, who may be, as it's often said, who love us but who are not impressed by us. Right? Those trusted friends who are able to call out the pride in us and lead us towards humility in those senses. To so clothe ourselves with humility. And now a big theme that Peter writes about here is also submission, and I think we have to acknowledge that submission is kind of uncomfortable to talk about, isn't it? Especially to most people today. Submission is kind of a weird, triggering word for a lot of people. The reformer Calvin said that nothing is more adverse to the disposition of man than subjection. For everyone has within them the soul of a king. But now as we have read this book of First Peter, we see that submission is a common theme. He's been talking about this a lot as far as our, our ability to be humble and submit to our leaders. Because Peter has instructed the leaders to care for and to be shepherds of the flock. And so it's in those cases, if the leaders are being shepherds, that it is safe for us to submit. So he's saying, as followers, submit and things will work out because I've instructed these leaders to care for you. But of course, we know that it makes sense why so many of us are uncomfortable with the word submission. Because we know that leaders aren't always good. We know that leaders don't always take care of people. We have seen it happen way too often in this world and in this country where leaders do abuse authority. We see that even with checks and balances in place, authority can still be abused. And we know that in those cases where authority is abused, it's injustice. And justice and fighting for the oppressed is a headline in the Bible. It is something God cares deeply about. And so we know that in cases of injustice, submission is not always the answer there. We get it as good 21st century American citizens that kings are often bad and and we fight against authority. And in cases of injustice, that is what God calls us to. And I wish I had more time to unpack this whole idea of submission to authority, but maybe I'll be back sometime. (laughs) Today... Just thought we had to acknowledge that. That submission is tricky. But today we simply choose to focus on humility. On realizing that we are not God. We are not king. Jesus is king. And the instruction stands for us to submit to shepherds, shepherd's leadership. And to clothe ourselves with humility. To submit to one another and to serve. To be humble. Now Peter said, be shepherds, be humble. And this final instruction is to be alert and of a sober mind. So we're going to read this in verse 8, 1 Peter chapter 5. Be alert and of a sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So it's in this section that Peter is reminding his readers. This devil is real. He's out there. He's out to get you. And his directive for us as we seek to grow closer to Jesus is to be aware that there is more going on in the world than meets the eye. There's more going on than we can see. To be of a sober mind. Now that's, I think, kind of a rough translation to 2020 English. Of a sober mind is not something we're really familiar with talking about in this sense Often we hear sober and we think of drugs or alcohol or something like that. But oftentimes uh, other versions will instead use self-controlled because we see, and I think that's helpful. I think it's helpful to view it as self-control because in this context of spiritual warfare, self-control and the pursuit of holiness is spiritual warfare. It is a fight against evil. As we see in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was in the desert, if you'll remember his temptation in the desert, he fought a literal battle with Satan. And if we look at his example, during that temptation, the weapons he used were scripture and a self-controlled sober mind. If we follow that example, we don't we don't indulge the demonic thoughts that come into our mind. We don't let them play like <laughs> videos. We set our minds instead on Scripture, on the truth of God, and on Christ himself. You see, Jesus, in his temptation, he refused to be drawn into conversation with the devil. Instead, he was vigilant, he was aware, there's more going on. And he used Scripture and a self-controlled, sober mind. And when we practice this this holiness-based, self-control, we actually face down evil itself, outside in the world and in our minds. We wage war often against these evil thoughts. We're waging war in our minds. Many of us don't realize that these, these sinful thoughts and patterns and addictive behaviors are spiritual warfare. Often we just look at it as maybe a character flaw or a lack of discipline in ourselves. And we think, you know, why am I still struggling with this, you know? I've been a Christian, I I gave my life to Christ, I was baptized, I've prayed about this. Why are these coming back? We have to recognize that these thoughts and these narratives that come back into our mind are actually encounters with evil. And as we practice self-control, we are waging a war against evil in our own minds. And It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that Paul wrote, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So you see, in our minds, we have these lies. We have these narratives that start running and playing like a video. And we take those captive and we set our mind into alignment with Christ. We remember the truth of scripture. And by doing so, we actually, as it says, we demolish strongholds of the devil. We tear those down and we we allow the spirit to free us from that bondage, to demolish those strongholds. And it's by this this sober mind, this self-control. Now, in our culture, and especially in mine, where I live in Oregon... Um, there are a lot of demonic strongholds. Oregon's great. I love it. Um, but Oregonians, if you know anything about them, are all about this radical pursuit of autonomy and individualism and self-expression and just self-enjoyment. After all, the slogan for one of Oregon's biggest companies is, just do it. Right? Right? And so talking about self-control, talking about maybe denying yourself something, is just a foreign concept. This just sounds crazy, because the good life is getting everything I want. It's just doing whatever I want. And this idea of taking my own thoughts captive, of maybe something within me isn't right and needs to be fought for or against, is completely foreign. I think there are examples of self-control in our culture. Um, health and fitness might be one of them, you know, where you, you deny yourself the burrito and you go for a run instead. But as we see, you know, the more corrupt a culture is, the easier it is for the devil to hide. And so often, what I think is that even these, these healthy practices of, of health and fitness, the devil can still hide in that. And it can still be more motivated by sex or by status or by selfish desires. And so Peter is saying, beware of these desires. Be aware that the devil is prowling like a lion to destroy these things and be of a sober mind. What he says to do in these cases, we see in verse 9, he says, resist and stand firm. And the same word he uses, stand firm, is used in James chapter 1, to stand against sin. Paul uses it in Ephesians 6 to stand against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So it brings with it not just this passive stance of standing and just not participating, but it brings this active stance against. It brings this active stance in because this word is also used in John chapter 15 when Jesus declared himself the vine. And he says, stand or abide or dwell in me. Stand in my presence. So as we look to stand against evil, to stand against these thoughts, it's rooted in standing in Jesus, of abiding in him, of being in his presence and of prayer. So when we hear spiritual warfare, often it's terrifying and we think it's going to be this really complicated, horrible thing. And Jesus says the way you stand against it is standing in my presence. It's prayer. It's standing in my patience, my goodness, my kindness, and being comfortable in my presence, being familiar with my character so that when these lies and these narratives come in, we know where to align our hearts and minds. We know to stand in Jesus. And it's when we place ourselves in Jesus' presence, when we are able to abide in Him, that we can find safety and freedom in the power of the Spirit, and the power of Jesus working through us to protect us from the enemy, to rewrite our thoughts and our narratives, and to change the way we, we relate to others around us. So to recap, called to be shepherds, called to be humble. We're called to be alert and of a sober mind. So as we seek to be shepherds, maybe you ask yourself and you ask God, what shepherding gifts do I have? How can I contribute that to this flock? And as we seek to be humble, maybe you seek out trusted friends to, to call out the pride in you. Maybe you look for ways to serve others and not to serve yourself. And as we seek to be alert and sober-minded, pray. Stand firm in the presence of God. And know that the Holy Spirit is fighting in you a fight against evil. Stand in God's presence. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? Jesus, I ask that, that you impart these things in us. That you make us shepherds. That you empower us with these shepherding giftings. God, we don't seek to work from our own effort. We don't seek just to labor. God, we seek to have our lives transformed by your Spirit. And we thank you for giving us your helper who will do that. So, God, we ask today. As we come before you with softened hearts, that you would empower us with your spirit to be shepherds, to be humble, to root out the evil in us, to give us that sober, clear mind. So that as we go in this world, as representatives of you, as we continue to try to follow your way and to to apprentice under Jesus, God, would you empower us to do so? Jesus, we trust you in that. In your name that we pray. Amen. Thank
0: you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.